So this morning uh, is our final message in the short series that we have been doing, uh, that we've been going through, that we've called The Ordinary Means of Grace. And it has been a series that has coincided with the new ministry year, uh, meant to help us reflect on who we are and what we do as a church. Because as I've been saying throughout this series, we want to be a church that's marked by the means that God has given to his people to experience his grace and witness to the world the glorious truth of Jesus Christ. And we don't want to be a people that trust in our own wisdom. We want to be a people that trust in the wisdom that comes from above. And so while there are many gifts that the Lord gives his people as a means of grace. We've been looking at the four primary ones that he gives his church. And the first one that we looked at was his word, uh, sung and read and preached. We looked at the prayers of God's people, uh, baptism. And now we are ending the series with a look at the Lord's Supper. And as we begin, uh, as I was preparing this week, I felt compelled that I should share a little bit of my own personal journey in learning to grasp the meaning and the significance of the Lord's Supper. And it's a journey that I am still walking on. It's still ongoing for me because it's easy as a pastor to give the perception when you're preaching that you're well-established, right? That you're acing absolutely everything that you're teaching to the congregation. And that is just not true. It is not true of me. It is not true of any pastor. I am walking out my faith as you are walking out your faith. I am growing in my knowledge and my understanding of him as all of us are. And so I felt that it was important to remind us of that this week as we talk about the Lord's Supper because I want my heart to grasp the gloriousness of the Lord's Supper, the depth of the meaning that is found in it. And I just feel like my heart hasn't fully done that yet. And I I want it to. And I think the best way to articulate that for you of what I mean is, is considering it or comparing it to baptism that we talked about last week. For some reason, from the moment that I came to faith at the age of 24, uh, through the work of the Holy Spirit, right, it's nothing else, but through the work of the Holy Spirit, I have grasped baptism in my heart to a depth where there are very few things in the Christian faith that move me more than baptism. There are few things that I love deeper than baptism, than seeing a man or a woman, seeing that depiction of a man or a woman who went from death, goes through the waters of baptism, rises up as a new creation. Like that just fires off in my heart like very few things in the Christian faith. It is something that as I watched it as a young believer, it would always bring me to tears. As I now have the honor of performing it as a minister of this gospel, it moves me incredibly. I find it awe-inspiring to watch that in someone's life. I'm captivated by it. And I want my heart to be captivated in the same way by the Lord's Supper. I understand it. I feel the depth, so I know it is incredibly important. I want it to move me in the way that baptism does. 
And that may freak some of you out, a pastor saying that right now. But I think it's important. I share it because I think there's so many Christians who struggle to grasp the gloriousness of the Lord's Supper. Maybe it's, it's partly due to the way that we partake of it in our culture. I don't know what it is, but I think there are many hearts that the Lord's Supper is viewed as a nice ritual. But I wonder if our hearts are taken by it. Right? Like, are we captivated by the fact that we get to eat of the bread and the wine and what that actually means? And I wonder if we've maybe lost some of the wonder of the Lord's Supper as Jesus' church. And so I'm hoping this morning with the help of the Spirit that we can, and myself included, grow in our awe of this means of grace that he's given us. And so let's pray to that end and ask the Spirit's help. Father, I thank you for each person here. Lord, I thank you for the men and women and the young people who are represented in this room. Father, they are an example of your grace. Father, for those who know you, they are just a beautiful example of your mercy over people's lives, over sinful people. Father, for those who are here that maybe don't know you, it is an example of your grace that you brought them here today to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, Father, I ask that your Holy Spirit would work in our hearts as we look at this glorious means of grace, the Lord's Supper. Father, give us a depth of what it means. Help us to understand it in the depths of our soul so that we're moved by it as we take it together. We know that it's significant, Lord, but we know there's also a difference between the head and the heart. So, Father, I pray that it would go deep in our hearts today. May the truth of your word stand out. Make us more like your son in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I guess I was kind of confronted by the, the, the question of whether our hearts are taken as they should be by the Lord's Supper. As I was preparing for this message this week, I came across some interesting information from the early days of the Protestant Reformation. Um, and some facts regarding the men and women who are part of this, this early movement away from Catholicism regarding the Lord's Supper. So between 1555 and 1558, uh, during the reign of Queen Mary of England, all you history buffs out there, Queen Mary of England, uh, there were 288 Protestant believers who were burned at the stake in England. 55 of those 288 were women. Uh, a handful of them were even children who were killed. And they were burned at the stake over the issue of the Lord's Supper. Queen Mary, who was a Catholic queen, had these believers burned because as Protestants, they held a different view than the Catholic Church did regarding the Lord's Supper. And at the center of the issue was the dispute that arose out of the Reformation of whether the real presence of the body and blood of Jesus was contained in the consecrated elements of the communion. So the Catholic Church held that, and still holds, that once the priest consecrates the communion elements, they contained the real and present body and blood of Jesus Christ. And at that time, if you disputed such a claim as the Protestants did, and we still do, it meant possibly being put to death as it did for those 288 believers. J.C. Ryle, he wrote on this topic regarding the significance of what was at the heart of what was going on. 
And why did this dispute arise? What was at the heart of the Protestant view and why these people were so willing to hold to their convictions? And he wrote this. He wrote, grant for a moment that the Lord's Supper is a sacrifice, as the Catholic Church believes, and not a sacrament. The result is you spoil the blessed doctrine of Christ's finished work when he died on the cross. A sacrifice that needs to be repeated is not a perfect and complete thing. You spoil the priestly office of Christ. If there are priests that can offer an acceptable sacrifice to God besides him, the great high priest is robbed of his glory. You overthrow the true doctrine of Christ's human nature. If the body born of a Virgin Mary can be in more than one places at the same time, it's not a body like our own. And Jesus was not the last Adam in the truth of our nature. So what Ryle is saying here is he's saying if if the real blood and the real body of Christ came into the communion emblems when they are consecrated, then that's like sacrificing him all over again, which means Jesus's offering wasn't finished on the cross. It also means that a priest, a sinful man, is able to offer such a sacrifice through his words. Then the glory of Christ as the great high priest is diminished and the power of sinful man is elevated. And this was a serious heresy to the Protestant believers who believed and held firmly to the priesthood of Jesus Christ and that his work was truly finished upon the cross. And they were determined to honor him by partaking of the Lord's Supper in the correct way. And I share this because it highlights the importance of the Lord's Supper and that what is the importance it has held in Jesus' church. It is not been a trivial matter to Jesus' church throughout history, but one of importance and meaning that at times men and women were willing to die to uphold and do correctly and honor Christ. And so with that in mind, let's open our Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23 to 30. That's our main text that Cam read for us this morning. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul is teaching, or maybe not teaching, more like rebuking uh, and, and correcting the Corinthian church about their practice of the Lord's Supper. In the first portion of the chapter, Paul rebuffs the Corinthians for their dishonorable practices surrounding the Lord's Supper. And, and then he teaches them what it is and how it should be taken. And we're going to look at the first part of chapter 11 as we proceed through Paul's teaching this morning. But I want to start in verse 23, where he explains what the Lord's Supper is and where it comes from. Paul says in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-three, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus Christ, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. So Paul, Paul is likely feeling some great disappointment in the church of the Corinthians because he was the one who taught them about the Lord's Supper. He says, I, I delivered to you. Right? And he sees what's going on in that church. So he's a little bit disappointed that it doesn't look like what he told them it should look like. But, but more than disappointing Paul, the church in Corinth should have been concerned with the fact that they were dishonoring the Lord 
Because though Paul was the one who shared the practice with them, Jesus is the one who imparted it to Paul. Because Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. And so this tells us two important truths about the Lord's Supper. And they're not things that we don't know. But first, it tells us that the Lord's Supper was instituted by Jesus. And we have very clear records of that fact from the Gospels of him instituting it with his disciples. Let's read Luke 22, verse 14 to 23. The night Jesus was betrayed. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another which of them it could be who is going to do this. So first, the Lord's Supper was given by Jesus. And second, it tells us that Jesus gave it to his church. He shared the first supper with his apostles who passed it down to his church as Paul did with the Corinthians. So the Lord's Supper was instituted by Jesus. It was instituted for his church. But why? And that's what Paul tackles next in verse 24 to 26. It says, And when he had given thanks, he broke it, the bread, and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper saying, this is the cup of the new, te- new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So Paul gives us two primary reasons Jesus' church practices the Lord's Supper here. He gives us in verse 24 and 25, he repeats twice The command, do this in remembrance of me. And then in verse 26, Paul says, when we eat the bread and drink the cup, we are proclaiming the Lord's death. And so the Lord's Supper then is an act of remembrance and an act of proclamation. And so let's look at both of those. First, it's an act of remembrance. Human beings are forgetful. (laughs) we have incredibly short memories. And especially in this day and age with all of the distractions that we have in front of us all the time. Nothing holds our attention for long. This is true in life and this is true in faith. And, And because of the battle between our flesh and our spirit, it can be especially true in faith. At times, we are creatures that are ruled by our circumstances. 
When circumstances are good, we can easily forget our need for the Lord. When circumstances are bad, we can very quickly blame the Lord for everything. We are forgetful people. We need to be reminded of who he truly is. Because our minds can take us on quite a journey about who the Lord is. I think we've all at one time or another thought wrongly about God or an aspect of his character. That's part of the fallen reality of man. And so the the Lord's Supper is a tangible act through which we slow down and we call to mind Jesus Christ. His body that was willingly offered for us. His blood that was poured out in the new covenant that now covers us. And as we reflect on that, our minds and our hearts should be captivated by the fact that we did not receive from God what we deserved. Instead, Jesus received what we deserved. So that instead of all that we now have been given is grace, undeserved from the Lord that he has gifted us through his son. It was the Lord's will to crush him so that we may have life. And I say may because we must take hold of that life. It is only through faith in Jesus Christ that we have that life that he died on the cross to give us. And the Lord's Supper reminds us of what Paul proclaims to the people in Athens in Acts 17, verse 28. In him, we live and move and have our being. That's the reality of what we're remembering in the Lord's Supper. And then second, the Lord's Supper is a proclamation. So we remember and we proclaim. When we take the Lord's Supper, we are proclaiming to all of those who witness it a testimony that announces, I have been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ through his death, I now live. This is what Paul means by we proclaim his death until he comes. Until Jesus returns, we have been charged as witnesses to proclaim his death and resurrection because it is through that That grace is freely available to broken and sinful men and women. And it is available until he returns to judge the world. And so long as Christ has not returned, there is time to respond to his work on the cross in faith. And that's what the Lord's Supper proclaims. The cross has covered me and it is available to you. Similarly then, the Lord's Supper proclaims our union with Christ in his death, which I preached on last week when we looked at baptism. And it also proclaims our union with one another, with every single person in this room who has faith in Jesus Christ. Through the Lord's Supper, we commune with him and we commune with brothers and sisters partaking of it together. And not just here, but Jesus at church all over the world. 1 Corinthians 10, 16, that's what Paul says here. He says, 
the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not participation in the body of Christ? Because there's one bread. We who are many are one body. For we all partake of the one bread. And so this also means when we partake of the Lord's Supper, we publicly are proclaiming not only Jesus' commitment to us, but when we take that bread and we drink that juice, we are proclaiming our commitment to him and we are proclaiming our commitment to one another. I don't think we think about that very often. And so the Lord's Supper is remembrance and it's proclamation. It's very similar, as I was thinking about it, it's very similar to the to a process of me preaching on a Sunday morning of what I'm doing right now. First, I call to mind the things of Christ through the week. I remember them. I study them. I learn them. And I come here and I proclaim it to you on a Sunday morning. It's the same thing that you do in evangelism. You remember the things of Christ and you proclaim it to the men and women who don't know it. And so that's what it is. And that's what it means. And now I want to look at Paul's warning about it. In verse 27 to 30. He says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. So after explaining what the Lord's Supper is, Paul gives a really serious warning to the church in Corinth that because of the significance of what the Lord's Supper stands for, whoever takes part in it in an unworthy manner brings judgment on themselves and will be found guilty concerning it. So to keep from that To keep that from happening, to being guilty before the Lord, Paul says, examine yourselves before you partake of it. And so the question that we have to answer is, what does it mean to eat the bread and drink the wine in an unworthy manner? And that's where I want to look back at the first part of 1 Corinthians 11, because Paul rebukes the church in Corinth. They were taking it in an unworthy manner. And so what were they doing? And there's some clues in there for us. And it doesn't cover everything, but it certainly covers some of the things that we need to be aware of. And so 1 Corinthians 11, verse 18 to 19, Paul says to the church, for in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. So to take the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner is to take it while division or dissension exists in your heart toward your church. So corporately, if you're causing division or dissension, 
amongst the gathered body to which you belong and you take the Lord's Supper with that body, you are doing so in an unworthy manner. What could this look like? Well, it could mean bringing false teaching into the church. It could mean disputing sound doctrine of elders and teachers. And I'm not talking secondary doctrines, okay? I'm not talking secondary doctrines. I'm talking primary ones. It could mean gossiping about those who are here or a group of people here or the leadership here, not acting in love towards others. To do those sorts of things, to to have that kind of spirit and then commune with those brothers and uh, sisters as part of the church is, for lack of a better word, two-faced. And that's what Paul's warning about. I think it's also valuable to understand that division doesn't have to be on a corporate level. If there's division between you and a, a brother or sister, and you're taking communion with them as part of the body, that should be resolved before eating the bread and drinking the cup. Because as we've already looked at, through the act of the Lord's Supper, you're communing with that brother or sister in Christ. So how can there be division and then you partake together? Paul continues in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 20. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. So from Paul's description here, it's evident that they partook of the Lord's Supper differently than we did. Uh, They took it as part of a full meal, which the letter of Jude in verse 12 describes as a love feast. Some of you have maybe heard that term before. But what was happening in Corinth was not what a love feast should be. Rather, it was causing a separation of rich and poor. Those who are well off brought an abundance of food and drink, which could have been this incredible opportunity to show brothers and sisters who had less Christian charity. To share it amongst all and share that meal together. But that was not what was happening in the church in Corinth. They did not share their abundance with those who had little. That's why Paul's saying one goes hungry and another one of you is getting drunk. The poor went hungry. The rich got drunk. There was no sharing. And clearly, no common meal happening amongst the people. And and it wouldn't be surprising if they were even eating in their little cliques, according to the divisions that Paul talks about existing in the church in Corinth. So the rich's lack of charity despised God's church. Their lack of communion with the poor showed absolutely no love. So there's a couple things that I think this tells us. 
We take the Lord's Supper in an unworthy way when we do not strive to live as Christ commands us to live. Doesn't mean perfectly, but we're walking it out. We take it in an unworthy manner when we are ignorant to our fallenness, where we don't recognize or feel the weight of our sin when we stand at the table of the Lord. They were oblivious. The rich were just eating in abundance and drinking in abundance. They had no idea that they were in sin, completely oblivious, just partaking of the Lord's Supper. Their conscience was seared. I think it's also safe to say that there is a correlation between how we feast at the Lord's table and our attitude toward the poor. Paul makes a clear correlation there. Do we eat and drink richly of his grace, but have absolutely no mind for those who are in need, especially amongst us? All of this, I think, means the following to sum it up. To eat and drink in an unworthy manner is to not appreciate what the Lord's Supper signifies. To not recognize our fallenness and heart's shortcomings in light of what the Lord has commanded of us. And ultimately, to not approach the Lord's table in a spirit of repentance and thanksgiving. And I say a spirit of repentance because Paul directs us to keep from partaking in an unworthy manner. We need to examine ourselves. And I would say to examine ourselves and not have it lead to a spirit of repentance in light of the Lord's table and what it signifies would mean we haven't really truly considered ourselves. And no matter what, like when I stand before Jesus and consider myself, I know where I land. And that's not about shame. That's not about guilt because it's covered by the cross. But it's about the reality of I know when I stand before God, it is only the blood of my Savior that makes me acceptable. The judgment rendered for not taking the Lord's Supper seriously is given in verse 20. That's why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. We don't like this verse. We just read that verse and go, ah, that, that, that happened back then. It's like Ananias and Sapphira. That'll never happen. We hope. That's how you make a church really small, very quickly. <laughs> but as a consequence of the dishonor of the Lord, some of the believers, Paul says, in the Corinthian church, they were weak. And they were, stuck, they were, they were struck ill by the Lord. And some even died. And we read that and, oh my goodness, that goes against every kind of like, thought pattern that we have in Western culture. What do you mean? They died. He struck them ill. We think, no, that, that can't be God that does that. But this was God's judgment, not his condemnation. And we have to know the difference. This was God's judgment not his condemnation. It was his judgment to keep them from further profaning the name of Christ. And Paul tells us specifically this was judgment, not condemnation, in verse 32. 
But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Paul is literally saying here that God will take some followers of Christ out of this world into the next so that they stop dishonoring the name of Jesus. Not that they're condemned. They are still with him in eternity. It's grace. That is really hard to get your head wrapped around. That's an entire sermon that I can't cover right now. So all of this to say, how do we, as a church, practice the Lord's Supper? Well, there's a couple things that I would say to it. First, we practice the Lord's Supper gathered as a family, as a church, corporately. Paul says five times in 1 Corinthians 11, when you gather together. And so I believe it is to be corporately done when we are all together. Not in small groups, not in partial gatherings, but when we're all together. Because it is a representation of the body of Christ together. And it's called a supper because it signifies the quenching of our hunger and the quenching of our thirst. Not physically, but spiritually, which is the deeper need that we have that is quenched through Jesus Christ. What does he say? Man does not live by bread alone. Right? Every word that comes from the Lord. It's a supper because it quenches the deepest need that we have. Just as food quenches the physical needs that we have. 